So, welcome to everybody to uh, the Burpack Centre for Contemporary Theatre. I'm Elizabeth Lynch. I'm a freelance creative producer and an associate fellow here at this centre. Um, I've joined this evening by a fantastic panel um, who are going to come and present to you later on. We have Omar Alerian, who is the, a theater, he's a theatre director, a, a divisor and a performer and associate director at the Bush Theatre in West London. We have Miriam Nelcom, who is the programme director of the Creative Barking and Dagenham Project programme in East London. Alina Azadeh, she's an artist whose practice is interdisciplinary and who works in a wide range of locations and settings. And Simon Poulter, uh, of, of Close and Remote, uh, who's also an artist who works, uh, in, inter who takes an, an interdisciplinary approach and works in lots of different locations and settings. Before I start, I'd like to thank Dr. Louise Owen and Dr. Fintan Walsh from the department who are lecturers and they're here this evening. Thank you for giving me this opportunity to have this conversation. In a moment, I'll invite each person to tell you about their work. Uh, we'll have a short panel discussion which, and then we'll open it out to the floor for the last 45 minutes of the session. So just to set the scene, um, the title of the event is Theatre Conversation, Approaching Socially Engaged Practice. Socially engaged practice is a complex and contentious term, and I felt very ambivalent about using it as a title. However, the tension inherent in the expression, which doesn't include the word art, offers a useful provocation for our conversation this evening. I don't want to spend time debating the term itself. There are interesting analyses of the terms community, art, participatory arts, social practice, with detailed examples in the reading list on the handout that I've given you. But I'll take from one of those books a quote by uh, Pablo Elguera. Socially engaged art as a category of practice is still a working construct. It goes back to the avant-garde and expands significantly during the emergence of post-minimalism. The social movements of the 1960s led to greater social engagement in art and the emergence of performance art and installation art, centering on process and site specificity, which all influence socially engaged art practice today. He goes on to say, socially engaged art functions by attaching itself to subjects and problems that normally belong to other disciplines moving them temporarily to a place of ambiguity. It is this temporary snatching away of the subjects into the realm of art making that brings new insights to a particular problem or condition and in turn makes it visible to other disciplines. I've invited artists working with people in a range of community settings to tell us about their approaches to involving, engaging, collaborating with people who for the most part do not engage with mainstream arts institutions and other state-funded or charitably-funded provision and opportunities. They're all people I've worked with in some capacity over the last two years and who I think are doing things differently. I've asked them to consider the following questions. As the 2010s unfold, who are the new allies in making socially engaged practice? How do artists know that what they are doing is working? What is shifting or changing as a result of artists' interventions? And what has to be disruptive? 
month. So I'd like to hand over first of all to Omar and Marianne, who's going to tell us about what they're, what they're doing at the Bush Theatre. Right. 12 minutes, was it? Sorry? 12 minutes, was 12 it? Minutes, okay, yeah. I'll try. And uh, I just want to uh, say something which might be useful to other people in the room, but um, I've got a, an ear infection in my right ear, so I'd like the speakers and the audience to... Um, project as much as they can, because that would be really helpful for me. Thanks very much. Uh, great. Hello. Good evening. Oh, this, this is a um, my name is Omar Ellerin. I'm the Associate Director at the Bush Theatre. I hope some of you might know about it, but if you don't, I will give you a bit of an overview about what the Bush Theatre is, was, and hopefully will be. Um, so... Uh, the Bush is a new writing theatre. It's based in West London, uh, more specifically in Shepherd's Bush. Uh, it's a theatre that is 44 years old this year. Uh, and for 40 years, uh, it's been literally a room above a pub. So it was created in 1972. They knocked down a wall uh, above this really old pub on the corner of Shepherd's Bush Green uh, and created a theatre which became a small black box that sat around 80 people. And for those 40 years, it became one of the worst-kept secrets of Shepherd's Bush uh, because there were loads of people coming there uh, and it uh, became the uh, launchpad for the career of many uh, great artists, whether uh, playwrights, performers, directors uh, that are now uh, directing big buildings or have won major awards. Uh, they've all started in one way or the other there. Uh, I recently discovered that Sarah Kane was literary administrator for a short stint of time in the late 90s um, as well. Um, so that was until 2012. Uh, and the Bush has always been recognised as a theatre was punching well above its weight uh, in terms of the kind of uh, narratives it was championing, uh, being at the forefront of new writing. Uh, in 2012, uh, we changed uh, artistic director, so Madani Yunus uh, was appointed artistic director. Uh, I joined him immediately, we had worked together before in Bradford. Um, and at the same time, the building, uh, the uh, company had secured its move into a new building, uh, Shepherd's Bush Old Library, which is this beautiful uh, Georgian building, building on the Oxbridge Road, just around the corner from where we were. Uh, so all of a sudden we went from uh, being a tiny theatre, 80 seats, in which you could literally feel the breath and the spit of the actors um, on, from the first row, to 150 seats, auditorium. We all of a sudden had a library, a cafe bar. We were open from 9am to 11pm. Uh, we had a rehearsal room, we had a studio, a theatre or something like that. Uh, and all that was uh, done without the aid of public funding. Uh, there was a very quick uh, campaign uh, and we found around £700,000 from Trust and Foundation and uh, private uh, giving uh, to move into the space because the space literally came uh, at the very last minute. So Madani and I started in this uh, new place and uh, I think it's important to uh, point out that at the time, and this is 2012, Madani Yunus was the first uh, non-white artistic director uh, to be nominated at the helm of uh, um, a building, a theatre building in London, uh, in the history of the UK, uh, Hindu, uh, um, at the 
tricycle came a few months later. Uh, and that was a very sobering um, piece of information at the time already, um, that uh, even though we in this country have championed some idea of diversity, uh, to be able to kind of have a, land, a landmark moment like that uh, so late in the day was already telling a lot about the challenges we had to meet and face um, in the rest of our tenure. So when we started, um, we were very clear from appointment that uh, uh, we were not going to do necessarily the things that we had done before at the Bush, uh, that were done before at the Bush. We would honor its tradition and its history, but uh, we were also there to write a new chapter uh, and, um, and look forward in a different direction. Um, there were three main principles that uh, were uh, guiding us at the time. We wanted the Bush to be open, we wanted it to be porous, and we wanted it to be plural. Uh, when I say open, I mean um, we wanted uh, the building to be open to people of different distraction. Uh, we wanted people to be able to physically uh, come in and out of the building uh, in a different way, and that was a great opportunity to be in uh, a place like uh, the old library, which carried such a strong, almost psychogeographical um, uh, value to the local neighborhood, because we had, for the first two, three years, people walking in and saying, oh, is this not the library anymore? And then going down some reminiscent route of, oh, this is where I met my wife, this is where I read my first book, um, this is where uh, I had my first snog. Uh, really great stories. Uh, just when uh, uh, normal people from the local community uh, coming in. And it took us a bit of time to explain, actually, yes, we are a library because we have a Playtex library in that same space, but we're also a theatre. Uh, and that was the beginning of a conversation for us. Um, the second uh, principle, porous, meant for us that the inside had to start looking a lot more like the outside of our building. Um, the Oxbridge Road is one of the uh, most diverse and actually longest streets in Europe. Um, there is uh, more than 30 languages speaking on the, uh, sp spoken on the Oxbridge Road. There is a wealth of restaurants and shops from all cultures and all corners of the world. The Shepherd's Bush Market, with which we share uh, our garden, uh, is uh, definitely one of the places where you can literally travel uh, through continents if you just walk uh, a short stroll uh, into it. Uh, and we wanted the building not to, we wanted to demystify this idea of the building being something that contained an idea, i.e. theatre or uh, a selected number of stories. Uh, we wanted really to be able uh, for the stage to reflect the wealth of diversity that, was, that we encountered every time we went for a lunch break and decided to go to Abu Zad or Mr. Falafel or Ochi's down the road. Um, plurality, uh, so we wanted it to be plural in a sense that we wanted those stories to be reflected on our stage. Um, a couple of sobering facts again from when we started. Um, very early in, and we're a new writing theatre, so uh, if, you're familiar, if you're not familiar with that, that means we only uh, commission, produce and develop um, new plays, which means they start from scratch, we commission a writer on the basis of an idea, or we produce a UK premiere of a new play that comes.
from somewhere else. Um, so it is really about the stories that we tell and the people we're telling it to. Um, so one of the first writers, uh, I won't say the name, but it was a young, extremely talented, handsome, 25-year-old uh, uh, black playwright. Um, and we sat with him having breakfast quite early in, uh, in our tenure and said like, look, uh, we really dig your work, we'd love to commission you, and uh, here you go, uh, what's your idea? And he started laughing, and this was on a Saturday morning at 9 a.m., and so like, that's not very kind, I mean, like, we're offering you uh, money and an opportunity, and he was like, oh, no, no, I'm just laughing because you know the joke about uh, the Bush Theatre and black playwrights, and so I'm like, no, what's the joke? So like, well, um, you know, black playwrights have never pitched a project to the Bush because uh, we've never seen a show go on here. And, and we were like, really? Is this what happened before? Um, and so we went looking at our back catalogue and actually we discovered that in the 40 years before um, there had been three black playwrights staged. Um, and that was a moment in which we realized that we had a lot of work to do uh, in terms of changing the attitude and also gaining some respect from uh, a wider community of artists and a wider community of audiences that wouldn't necessarily see the bush as the place to go uh, to uh, consume a new play, but also to hang out. Um, many things have changed uh, since then. Uh, we had uh, three extremely successful seasons. Uh, we've changed completely our ratio in terms of uh, the number of uh, artists that we engage with, in terms of the diversity of those artists, uh, in terms of gender balance, in terms of engaging with disabled communities, and of course, because we've always put the art first and the artists first, the audiences kind of followed suit. Uh, the moment we started engaging with artists that were speaking um, to a different audience or to a wider audience and were uh, more representative of the city that we live in and that we call our own and immediately that clicked and was translated in uh, press nights that didn't look exactly like the ones you would go to uh, every night where you see the same faces and the same people. Um, so we were happy from that point of view in terms of the work that we were doing with the art on stage, even though it's always a challenge because you have to maintain momentum and ultimately the bush needs to be, again, uh, a launch pad for them to go further and we cannot guarantee that will happen, but we try our best. Um, we started thinking, we have this great building, we do great art, we see a change in our audiences, but how does this affect our local community? Literally, the people that live within a one mile radius from our doorstep, and that uh, in the moment in which they enter, they might be slightly intimidated by the fact that there is a neon sign saying theater on it, or uh, that might not be very familiar with the number of stars that we put on the poster, or that, uh, still think that this is a library and um, how, how do we speak with them and how do we engage with them? Um, and it took us a while thinking about all the things that could have been done. We said, we have this theatre and uh, we have this building, we have the opportunity now to open it up and share it. Um, so it's been a process for the first couple of years, we did a lot of research. We wanted to understand who was on our doorstep. Uh, a lot of the time, 
we make constructs in our head about what are those communities that surround us. But actually, uh, when we started looking at the statistics, when we started reaching out to people, to community leaders, to the different associations that work on the ground, we were able to create an image that was much more in touch with reality. Um, and that allowed us to create for the first time a post of community producer uh, that was uh, opened uh, around 18 months ago. And now we have uh, an almost full-time community producer, Amanda Castro, who is in charge of connecting the community work that we do uh, with the artistic direction. Why I say this is important is because uh, we've always started from the premise that it's not about uh, having a department that develops community work for a community that is completely separated from the audiences or the artists that we engage with, but actually we see the community department working with the artistic direction. Those communities will be and are our audiences, those communities will be and are our writers of the future, our directors of the future, our performers of the future. Um, Amanda's first 12 months were uh, about forging those relationships and then um, in the last uh, year we were able to form a vision that uh, we're hoping to take for the next uh, forward for the next three years uh, and that vision is, has to do with the idea of the community associates um, so currently at the bush we have a number of ways of engaging with artists uh, we call them associates which means we uh, ask those artists, whether they are producer, playwrights, directors, or companies, um, to come into our building and be part of the fabric of the building, which means participating to uh, programming meeting, which means reading the scripts that we might or might not produce, uh, which means uh, running workshops, uh, uh, creating talks and debates and side events uh, for all our activity, and ultimately shaping the kind of work that we want to do and how we reach out to our audiences and how we speak about ourselves and in a wider context uh, within our industry, how we speak about our ecology uh, on the cultural landscape. Um, and so we said, would it be interesting if instead of having just projects, we were able to appoint uh, two companies, uh, and for the moment it's companies, it might be individuals, that were doing some important work on the community and make them associates of our building. Offering them the same services, the same amount of resource, the same visibility uh, that the Bush can offer to its artists. So, uh, we just recently received uh, um, a quite substantial uh, grant from the Paul Hamlin Foundation um, for the Community Associate Programme and uh, we're pleased to announce that we have our first uh, of associates and it will be two companies. One is Nubian Life, which is uh, a local uh, association. It was uh, the first association in West London uh, to take care about, that uh, was dealing with taking care of elderly people from uh, African and Caribbean descent. Uh, it started uh, as a small thing. It was mainly about catering for food and... Is that 10 minutes already? Oh my God! I need to go quickly and wrap it up. Um, <coughs> And, uh, and the other company is Only Connect, uh, which uh, works with uh, young uh, men uh, that have had to do with the justice system and looks at their rehabilitation through the arts. 
Uh, they will work with us for the next 18 months. They will be part of the narrative of the Bush Theatre, a narrative which is quite exciting at the moment because we are now closed for uh, a capital redevelopment project. We will reopen in 2017 with an improved building, with a studio space that will be devoted especially to associate artists and uh, emerging artists and the community associates. It will be a way to engage with even more communities, with more people around our area. And we hope uh, we'll be able to empower those artists and those communities to affect the change that we want to see on our stages and uh, in our auditorium, on our seats. Thank you. for Creative Barking and Dagenham. And Creative Barking and Dagenham is um, one of the Arts Council's Creative People and Places funded programme. Um, it, it's been running for three years, since 2014, and it'll be running for another three because we just got our extension funding from the Arts Council until 2019. Um, and the aim of the whole programme is to get more adults um, involved in the arts in Barking and Dagenham, and it's particularly targeted at people who don't currently get involved in the arts which when we first started three years ago was about 70% of the population in Barking and Dagenham. So what I wanted to talk to you about today is how our project enables local people to lead on commissioning and curating arts in the area and give you some examples of the kind of work this has resulted in and um, also what a difference the project has made in the borough. So we're a, quite a tiny team, we're a core team with three people that run the programme and two of us are part-time, but at the heart of the project is a team of about 125 at the moment, local people who are advocates and decision makers for the programme and we call them our cultural connectors and you can see some of them on the slide behind me. Um, the project just couldn't exist without them. They um, have all the power in terms of what art gets commissioned on the programme. The, the Creative Arc and Dagenham team facilitate those decision-making um, processes and we don't vote on, on any art that gets commissioned. Um, so any Barking and Dagenham based adult can join this network. Um, cultural connectors are currently from a wide range of backgrounds. The age range is 16 to 68. So far they've commissioned over 200 artists and arts organisations to make work in Barking and Dagenham. Uh, they've curated four large scale festivals for us. And all of this is done through taking part in steering groups, commissioning panels and artist pitching sessions. They also form interview panels to recruit our project staff. They talk at conferences for us, they talk to the media about the programme, um, and they go on lots of trips and visits to us to arts venues and events across the UK so that they've got inspiration and stimulation for thinking about what they'd like to see in their area. Technology, eh? Okay, there we go. So I thought I'd start just by talking about some of the early challenges when we first started in the borough, um, which were um, a lot of cynicism and scepticism about how much arts cost and who makes the decisions and things being parachuted in. Um, lots of problems with just not knowing how to find out about what arts activities were happening. Um, very few kind of networking and development opportunities, mainly for the local arts sector. It was kind of striking how 
There was very little ways for local arts organisations to connect and share information. Um, and just this really deep perception of the arts as being quite irrelevant, as being something for kind of kids, what kids do in schools when they kind of scribble in arts classes, or for posh people, like you need six degrees to understand art, it's not for the likes of me. So this was the kind of, when I first started and I was kind of going out and about and speaking to everybody, this was the kind of main attitudes that, that we were sort of coming up against. And it's kind of epitomised by this image, which is of a public artwork on the A13 embarking. And it was part of a big, expensive scheme of art along um, the A13. Some of it was successful, some wasn't. Um, and there are two of these sculptures, and they're known locally as Madonna's tits. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and when I first started in the borough, these artworks were mentioned to me so many times as an example of how all art is rubbish. And this sort of came to epitomise like, what we were trying to change there. So our sense was that the most important thing that Creative Arkham and Dagenham could do to tackle the challenges that we find was to build networks of local people who were interested not necessarily in the arts but in making things happen in their area. We were meeting so many individual bright sparks and really noticing how people just weren't connected to each other, people didn't know each other. And so over the last three years we've really concentrated on connecting those sparks and essentially building a new creative community in the borough and enabling this community to lead on making decisions about what happens in their area. So at the start, it was kind of about designing processes and systems to make this possible. So I want to... Participatory decision-making in the arts is not a thing that's done often. So I wanted to show some images about what it looks like and and what it can result in. So this is an example of groups of culture connectors choosing images for installation in underground stations in Dagenham. In fact, they were all installed yesterday. There's 18 kind of six-foot images in there. So they curated these images. They decided um, what they wanted the images to say, what what narrative they wanted the images to tell the thousands of people travelling through the stations. And they worked with the artist Verity Jane Keith um, to kind of think about how to group the images, um, the dialogue of the images with each other. And it was a a brilliant session. People had loads of ideas. And this is um, some of the images that are now up in Dagenham East, Heathway and Beckentree stations, if any of you ever go around East London. And it's the first time that Transport for London have ever allowed art commissioned by someone else to be put in their stations. So we're pretty chuffed about it. And it's an amazing feeling for the local people that have had that decision on, on what they see every day as they're passing through the stations. It's tremendously empowering. This is another example of how local people make decisions. Um, so this is Dagfest, our summer festival circus, street theatre, music and dance. Um, Culture Connections decided they wanted us to put on a summer festival. It wasn't anything that we'd really thought about doing. Um, but they wanted more visible signs of creativity in the borough. They felt there are loads of creative people there, but you can't really see it when you come to Barking and Dagenham. They wanted more chances for people to come together, celebrate and have fun. They wanted more events in Dagenham rather than Barking because they felt the council always invests in Barking. And they didn't want events hidden away in parks. They wanted them to happen on the streets where people are. So this was the kind of menu that they gave us. And we had to think about, right, well, how do we, how do we enable them to be in the lead to create this festival? And how do we enable them to get that vision to happen? So we brought on Maggie Clark, who's the director from Extracts, you can see sitting on the right of that table. And she's an expert in the outdoor art sector. And she really, she really worked with them to kind of let them know about what kind of content is out there. Because what what the cultural connectors have is, is hugely in-depth knowledge about their local context, but they don't have enough experience of what artists are out there 
um, and what's possible. So she um, and we went on loads of different trips to summer festivals all across the UK to get a sense of what you could do with the summer festival. And then they took her on site visits around the borough to choose a site and she helped them think about things like dressing room space and what kind of floor is available, all the logistics stuff that you don't know if you've never done it before. And that was Dagfest last year. And it's curated by, I should have said, a steering group of about 20 people who meet every month to make all the decisions about marketing and programming. And I can hear Simon whispering because he came. It was fun, wasn't it? It was amazing. Yeah. Um, it's the borough's first large-scale resident-led festival. So in its first year last year, 5,000 people came. Um, and of those 5,000, 80% were local residents and 70% hadn't had any other arts experiences in the past year, so it absolutely hit our target audiences. And it's really important for us because our whole ethos is about reaching people who don't currently take, take part in the arts. And we think the, rise, the reason why it was so well attended is because local residents really knew how to match content with context. They really knew what was going to work. And it was their festival, so they spread the word about it like you couldn't believe, and it just, it was a buzz. Um, so Dagfest is happening again this year on June the 18th, and the local council now give us a grant towards it, and East Thames Housing also support it. And then after that, the Cultural Connectors last December decided what the borough needs is a winter light festival. We are their slaves to their ideas. So, so now the newest thing is um, they want a winter lights festival. It's going to happen this November. And again, we had to think about right, how do we help them to make that happen. So we took what we learned from Dagfest, and we're kind of developing this in a similar way with them. Um, the basic pattern is cultural connectors have an idea and we match them with an experienced artistic advisor to help develop the idea and then we organise go-see trips to different events or venues so they can experience different artworks and then we form a steering group which meets monthly to develop the event. So there they're sitting with Hannah who's the producer of Lumiere which is a big four-day light festival in London in January and they're quizzing her about how she put Lumiere on and from that they then did some site visits around the borough to think about where we'd like our festival with a much tinier budget than, than our stroke had for Lumiere. So that's them on a site visit. This is the venue that they've chosen for the Light Festival, which is this Elizabethan kind of Tudor mansion house um, just near Upney Station, surrounded by a, a big housing estate. But as you can see, it's got turrets, it's got walled gardens, it's an amazing venue. And so we've made a partnership with them um, to bring that Light Festival to light. And... Um, that was the first steering group meeting. And you can see with the steering groups, we quite often have a lot of kids. We're very family friendly. We kind of work in the times that people can come. We do some stuff in the mornings, some stuff in the evenings, and we're really flexible. And everyone is kind of made to feel they can chip in ideas, and everyone does have loads of ideas. Um, this is an example of how cultural connectors get involved at really early stages of an idea. So when I, in previous jobs, when I've done site visits, it's usually been like me and artists and maybe someone from the local authority from a technical perspective. In this job, site visits normally involve about 12 local people as well. And it's really, it, it makes for a much more successful site visit. Um, so for example, on this one, this is some artists who want to do a big project next May using sound to disrupt public spaces across Barking and Dagenham and three other areas. And... Um, what was great about it was the cultural connectors were able to tell the artists everything about the area to help them plan. So they could tell them what happens in the spaces at different times of day, the areas that feel unsafe at night that you could make an intervention in, about the mosque that used to be a pub 
and what used to happen there, about the church choir that sings outside Asda's on a Saturday morning, about which spots the street preachers like to occupy and when, about the people being decanted from the tower blocks which are being demolished, and the artists were just absolutely buzzing afterwards, because that's, that's what you want, that amazing level of local, local knowledge. And the cultural connectors were absolutely buzzing about working with the artists to make something really new happen in their area. The other way that local people through the Culture Connectors Network commission art is through um, open calls and through kind of commissioning panels. So this was one of the first pieces that they commissioned and it was through a strand of work called the Landmark Commissioning uh, Strand which was an open call to artists to come and make site-specific work responding to different landmarks across Barking and Dagenham. Um, and so yeah, this one was by Punch Drunk at Eastbury Manor House and um, it's resulted in enduring relationships. Punch Drunk are working in five schools in the borough now they're looking at uh, having their headquarters in the borough. So mm -hmm. it's, it's kind of built up the relationships that we wanted it to. But it was a challenge because it was the first one we did and our engagement wasn't as wide then. And then nobody knew who Punch Drunk was, which was quite a new thing for them to come to an area where no one's ever heard of them. So I think there was a bit of learning there. Um, this was another landmark commission, two minutes, uh, an ex-pharmaceutical factory in Dagenham. Again, chosen by the Culture Connectors with support from our artistic advisor, who happens to be one Elizabeth Lynch as well. Um, and this involved a huge community cast, so local people commissioned it, they took part in it, they were front of house at it, they were involved at every stage. And um, they asked us to do a Q&A with the artist afterwards, which never happens. That level of engagement is quite rare. And I have to mention also another commission that local people did was Close and Remote, which is Simon's company. They made a film about the last 50 years of working lives in Barthel and Dagenham. So I think quite often there's a bit of a myth about participatory decision-making and it leading to kind of dumbed-down, safe, boring art. And I find it's often those with vested interests in the status quo and holding on to power that kind of talk about those myths. Because for us, the opposite is true. Involving local people in making decisions about, about art has resulted in a really diverse and exciting body of work. There's nothing safe or boring about it from our perspective. Um, Elizabeth asked me to mention a little bit about impact on artists. Um, so these are a couple of quotes from, from artist perspectives, but I might skip over them because we're, we're late, but I could come back to that if anyone wants to ask me more about it. Um, and I felt like I'm talking a lot about what local residents are getting out of this and how it's working. It's quite important to sort of have some quotes from there. So Hadra is um, mother of four, lives in Barking, runs Refresh magazine, which spreads good news across the borough. Um, she knows everybody. And for her, she said, it's allowed her to meet more people, it keeps her going, and it, and it gives her connections to the community. Um, Robin talks about how having so many local people involved in making arts happen in the area is, is a real political resource. And it helps, you know, if the Councillor are thinking about getting arts cut. If you've got a big body of local people behind you, it really helps. And then Farah, who um, works in the Barking Bathhouse, which is a spa in Barking Library, highly recommend it. Um, she's talked about how creative Barking and Dagenham gives the borough a foundation and identity as well as cohesiveness. It's that thing about connecting up people that, that didn't have a way of getting connected before. It's not that the ideas weren't there, it's just they weren't connected up. And here's another one, this is the last one of these. It's um, about the events this year really opening people's eyes to the arts and more of a sense of community. And thinking about that idea of, of people's eyes being open to the arts, I just wanted to mention how ridiculously popular our trips to the Royal Opera House are because I think 
there are some assumptions that are made about people's tastes in the art and, and what people from Barton Dagenham may or may not like. And as part of our go see strand, we've got a deal with the Roll Up Prize where we can sell cheap tickets. And we've sold over 400 tickets to two performances at the Roll Up Prize. There's a massive, massive demand. And um, the vast majority of people who bought the tickets have never been before it, and they love it. And it's because it's this kind of massive, social, glamorous experience. And in a way, it shouldn't even be surprising. Um, there's an assumption that this art would be irrelevant or perceived as elitist by people from places like Barking and Dagenham. But sometimes it's not about the art. It's about the invitation, and it's about the way it's packaged. And crucially, it's about who else is going. These are really sociable trips. There's like 200 residents at a time heading off to the Opera House. It's really good fun. Um, so finally, I just wanted to end with this one quote from Jaha, one of our culture connectors, which I think sums things up quite well. So she says, I think all the funding stuff is great, but the most important thing is the culture connectors. For me, that's more important than an artist getting a commission in the borough, because it leaves more of a legacy. Having an artist might change your mind or your concept of art, but having a community of people where friendships are formed is more valuable. And when I first started this project, I, I thought it would be the art that would excite people the most. And three years on, I know that the, the art has really excited people, and it's changed the way that the borough feels and looks. But the most exciting thing has been the way people have connected with each other, and the way people's confidence has been built, not just in each other, but in their ability to make decisions about what happens in their area. And the way that we work does have its downsides, I don't want to be completely Pollyanna about it, is intensely resource-intensive and time-consuming developing the network of connections with people and partners and stakeholders, artists and arts organisations. It takes a lot of time and participatory decision making is really time consuming. It's much easier when one person just has the role they make the decisions. Um, however, all that aside, this has been the most interesting, eye-opening, revolutionary project that I've ever worked on. And I can't imagine really going back to a more traditional, narrow way of making art happen there. And I think, sort of connecting with what Omar was saying, I think if more institutions and organisations in the arts sector adopted some of these kind of processes, you would see a huge change for the better in the entire arts landscape, not only in terms of diversifying audiences, but also diversifying arts leadership and the kinds of art that gets commissioned and made as well. Thank you. I would do a kind of case study, reflective case study of a project that I did <coughs> that finished um, at the end of last summer, uh, started in 2011. So it's quite a long project um, and Elizabeth was involved in, uh, in the, as a touring producer and it's the first time I've ever done anything more than once. So, um, and it's the first time I've ever done anything really performative. Um, because mainly I've worked with um, objects and installation and I've worked a lot with dialogue and writing and digital but I'd never done something like a performance it's called Burning the Books and um, it was a very simple premise 
uh, it began in Liverpool in 2011, and it was um, it was it evolved through a six-week uh, program with um, five other artists and a, a live artist called um, uh, Tim Jeeves. Uh, it was all around about gift and darker sides of gift and. I was doing, I wanted to do some research around debt because it was affecting me personally and also it was something that was really bothering me about how how disempowering the way I was thinking about debt might be and I didn't really understand what it was so it became a kind of inquiry into what debt was and I did a lot of research around the mythologies around debt and I ended up with this kind of <clears throat> looking at, uh, um, I ended up basically doing a one uh, afternoon uh, piece where I wandered the streets of Birmingham, um, of Liverpool with a book of debts like this. This is number nine, but so I had this book with credits on one side, debts on the other. And I decided not to tell people that I was an artist or what I was doing. And I just, uh, it was a busy Saturday afternoon shopping, and I just went up to people and said, is anything that you have that you owe anyone? Um, because I have this book, and uh, if you give me your debts, I will be um, burning this book later on in the day, and I'd like to invite you to witness the burning. Um, so, and I didn't know what would happen. So, and I thought I would be given money, you know, like sums of money, because I do a lot of thinking around the kind of strange, you know, this, the, the, the system and global economics and, and injustice and stuff. But the first person that I approached was this um, old guy, um, and he kind of and I wore a long coat. It was a bit, you know, theatrical. And nev I'd never done that before. I was totally out of my comfort zone. I was terrified. I was kind of quite enjoying the terror. And uh, he said, uh, "What is that?" I said, "Oh, it's a book of debts. Do you anything you owe anyone? Because um, I'm collecting." And I had I had a few of them in there from uh, some of the artists. We'd done a kind of, you know, R and Ding of what debts could be. Um, and he read them and he said, it's really strange that you asked me this because today is the 15th anniversary of the death of my, of my wife. And I really feel like I didn't give her the love and care that I could have done. And I feel like that's a kind of heavy debt burden. Can I put that in your book? Is that, is that a debt? And I said, absolutely. So he, and, he's, and, he, and he, he sort of was trembling and he was he's, he's writing in the book and he said, what, who are you? What? Why are you? What is this? He said, "It's like." I said, "Well, I'm an artist, and I'm um, doing a project at the Blue Cone." He said, "Well, this is strange because this is a bit like a kind of free public service. People don't do this kind of thing." Uh, thank you. You know, he was really sort of effusive, and um, and so I just I just went, you know, person to person, and I met Occupy activists. Uh, protesting against Philip Green's unpaid taxes outside top shops. I got a whole other I, I met fundamentalist Christians putting putting in you know the sins uh, owed to uh, and, and you know the lives owed to Jesus. I met someone who was happened to be from the credit consumer group who was talking to me about you know uh, um, uh, payday loans and all kinds of things. And then, uh, uh, so I had this. So I literally had this whole other sort of spectrum. Of, of, of stories about debt that I hadn't kind of expected to get. And, um, and what was interesting was um, I thought it was one-off. And when we did the kind of ceremony, if you like, I thought it was a bit like a, just a sort of one-off protest intervention piece. Um, 
uh, read everything that was in the book, up it went. And then what surprised me was that, that people were really emotionally affected by this, with what was effectively was a ritual. Uh, and they said, you have to go do it again. Um, uh, it took me about a year and I never expected to do anything that was just other than me walking the streets with a book but I soon, I soon realised that actually as I started to open up what the subject of debt was and ask people what they thought it was the, the definition of it grew and my understanding grew so it became a kind of inquiry into really you know, how um, the concept of debt which is connected to you know, morality um, as well as economics um, and ideas of sin and ideas of regret and uh, connected to social bonds and gratitude as well um, uh, was it just sort of, it started to expand so um, I set up an online book and I did a residency uh, in a studio down in Portslade and I decided to, to try going out over the course of a few weeks and to try different ways of engaging people so I, uh, I held some um, I had a meal where people come me and I would, I would sort of give a provocation around what debt might be and we'd have discussions and they put things into the book and I went I went all the way down one street into every um, into every uh, shop getting you know stories and comments and what I found was that the, some people just thought I was mad and some people when they started to um, read the stories in the book would, would got absolutely kind of um, uh, uh, got really hooked and you know uh, there was there was a story about someone who I found out actually quite recently put something in every single book that was out and I actually put in nine times online um, because she felt she had so much to, she had so much to say and to share and she had so many levels of debt and her understanding of debt kind of grew so this was the first this, the second burning so this was with um, it was in Portslade at the Blank Gallery um, and then uh, we went to Birmingham and we initially had some support from Fierce Festival. Um, to do this, but it was very hard, and Elizabeth was had the hard edge of this, but it was very hard because I wanted to get into particular communities that were particularly impacted by financial debt and, uh, and the effect on mental health. I found, that, I found that to be a kind of very powerful, powerful aspect of the inquiry, but it was very difficult to do. It was very difficult to get to, get to gatekeepers in those communities, and what I realised was that it needed more time, and we weren't from that place. So Elizabeth got me into the Birmingham Library and I sat there uh, and just talked to people with my book who came in. And uh, we, we sent out letters to the people of Birmingham about the project and we did quite a lot of social media. Um, I was blogging and we got a bit of media. And as a result, this man came along, uh, came into the library and he said, are you the, are you the lady with the book of debts? I said, yes, I, I have to talk to you. And uh, he turned out to be a, a kind of a canon from the cathedral, and also the head of the Jubilee Debt Campaign in Birmingham. And so we had this massive, amazing conversation about um, uh, uh, the uh, in global injustice and you know, the, the um, toxic debt in third world uh, in developing countries. And um, and we ended up basically doing the book in association <coughs> with the cathedral uh, and outside the cathedral. And uh, we had a talk, and we, we were on, on the day, we were kind of wandering around the square, and we did a writing, I had to do, start doing writing workshops, we did one with uh, students at the university, um, and so we I was started to basically live, build different levels of, of uh, engagement with this, and we had things coming on online, 
Um, so it became a kind of hybrid um, space for different people contributing stories at very different levels. Some of them are kind of one-liners and some are really well-crafted, uh, profound uh, entries. Uh, and then we, um, that's the dean of the cathedral there. She questioned at one point, uh, uh, you know, is this heretical, my, my, my Congress might be heretical. And um, so we had a meeting with, with John Buchanan. He said, well, actually, biblically, that's what they used to do. They used to take the, the debt bonds, uh, the tally sticks, and every seven years, and they used to literally destroy them. So this is completely in line with, um, uh, with, with what we know to be just and true. So it's so interesting because I didn't, you know, I, I'd, I'd read about that, but it was great to hear that kind of voice. So, um, and then, um, as a result, I got invited to speak at the Life Before Debt conference, which is a brilliant conference um, uh, in 2014. And um, we had the, the book there, and I did a provocation. So I was building this provocation about debt, which you can, you can watch... Uh, there's a half-hour film about the project on Vimeo for Burning of Books, No Debt Without Story. Uh, and I was building provocation, and everywhere I went, I would get new definitions of debt, and I would expand it, and it would grow. And by the time the tour finished, it was this really quite complete, um, three-dimensional kind of reading of what debt can be on you know, social, political, personal, emotional, uh, and financial levels. Um, and... Uh, this was a precursor to doing a residency at Fabrica Gallery, which was all around gift and social exchange. So it fits. So what was interesting was that I had some pre-set um, uh, burnings and residencies, and um, and then some we kind of made up, didn't we? Got two minutes. So and uh, what was quite tr tricky was I think I expected um, the ones that were more organised. So with with institutions, I did one at the museum in. Um, uh, in Manchester as well, to be easy gatekeepers into communities that I could go and work with and do writing with and have dialogue with. But that wasn't always the case. It tended to work very well on a one-to-one -one basis or when I had a cultural connector within the community. So we did it in Lewis, my hometown, and that just flew. That was so easy. And we did it in Brixton with... Um, uh, oh, yeah, oh, here we go. Yeah, so uh, this is Lewis where we first decided to start doing co-reciting. So rather than just a, me reciting the book, I invited people to recite their own stories or to choose stories of their own and, and co-recite them. So it became this communal thing, which was about kind of challenging the stigma of debt as well and that it can't be something that can be, that can be voiced. It has to be anonymous and, and, and secretive. And so it became this sort of social space, which is not what I expected to do. And here uh, in East London, we did it with a choir. So people, we, we had a kind of vocal a thing going on and members of the choir reciting their own debts and picking out debts that they, their stories that they felt were uh, powerful. So it basically built from just me and a book to, you know, a choir of 40 people. This is in that museum. Um, and this one in Brixton, just to sort of wrap that up, is to say that Barbie, who was the producer, was very, very, she's been living there, you know, all her life. She knew everyone. She knew where to take the book. Um, and she knew how to get coverage. And it was uh, the, the most kind of organic one, the most organic book, in a way. And so we had people from the community also reciting. And um, that was, to me, um, when it worked the best, was when there was a trusted person who could, I could work with to kind of open up the narrative and the, and the project in that way. Um, 
And just to say uh, uh, as well that um, you can't, I couldn't underestimate the power of the digital uh, contributions to the book and the mixing and the use of, you know, we did a lot of media interview, a lot of media, media interviews, and how bringing out the narrative of the project tried to challenge and change people's thinking around around the, um, you know, the moral power and the supremacy that all debts must be paid to try to challenge people's thinking was something that I hadn't intended to do, but I think started to happen and is now kind of in the mainstream more. Um, and, you know, this was a small step, you know, towards, yeah, really challenging a narrative that was quite dark and I think, um, you know, politically um, toxic at the time. So it became something celebratory and that was, was fun and also, yeah, it was a kind of, it was quite a, it became quite a party, which is not what I expected <laughs> at all. <laughs> so there we go. That's, sorry, I ran over, didn't I? Yeah. Okay, I'm going to try and be uh, funny, funnier than Alina, um, if I can. Yeah, I'm going to speak up as well. Sorry, I remember that. Um, so yeah, I'm Simon Poulter, and I'm seriously badass kind of person. Basically, I work with uh, Sophie Meller. Um, we um, uh, our organisation, which is unincorporated therefore not for profit, it's called Close and Remote. Um, and what we like to do is kind of dive into working in different situations and we've been lucky enough to uh, be commissioned by all sorts of wonderful people. Um, so um, one of the things I'm going to do is respond to the question actually because I think it's a really interesting one around... Um, how this kind of stuff arises. So um, I may not look like the sort of person who's done my homework, but I actually have. So um, a lot of the rhetoric around socially engaged practice comes from Pierre Bourdieu, and there's a room full of clever people here, and they will know who I'm talking about. So what we're talking about is social capital, and we're talking about cultural capital. Um, so uh, the person that I always cite for me personally, I think it's a really interesting uh, academic and writer is a guy called Grant Kester, American academic. And uh, Kester took Pierre Bourdieu's writing um, and appropriated it into a sort of discourse about what happens when people like me go into rough communities. Um, do we think this is a good idea? Um, do we think that these people here should, who've had good education should be bussed into the roughest parts of Liverpool and Manchester and make it all better. Now clearly that isn't actually how it works. So what Kester talks about is um, agency. Um, he, he kind of 
sort of builds on Bourdieu's idea of cultural and social capital, and he says that um, the problem with people sort of bussing in for a quick residency is that quite often they can actually be quite vampiric. They can take the assets and the, the kind of you know the, the bad bits of the community, front it up on a video camera, get it up on a three-screen projection in a nice gallery and walk away to the next gig in South Korea. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't do that, by the way. So, um, so I think that's a really interesting thought. But what, one of the things that uh, Kester does open up is this idea of, of reciprocality, which is that artists can make exchanges with people in communities. And that, I agree, is a worthwhile thing to do, and that's what we do in our work. Um, So to do that actually requires changing the language. So we would not regard what we do as intervention because that would suggest a hierarchy of vision, i.e. we know better. So we don't use that language. And increasingly the language of how art practice is actually discussed is quite fraught, and we've decided that's actually quite an interesting um, territory to play in. So we're presently doing this project called Life Chances, which is a commission with the University of Bristol and the University of Cardiff, and it's um, part of a scheme called Productive Margins, if you're interested. Um, Essentially what we're doing is we're going into two uh, community centres, one in Bristol and one in Cardiff, and um, we're writing a novel with um, people who attend these centres. Most of them are recent migrants or refugees to the UK. Um, some of them don't speak English. We have translators. So um, to coin a phrase, we have this top weird situation where we have university, university researchers, we have artists, and we have people from Somalia, Libya, and all over the world. And basically what we're doing is writing a novel together. And at the same time, um, one of the things we're doing is actually looking at um, making jewellery. And this is um, partly to do with things that we've learned in working in places like Barking and Dagenham, which is that sometimes you actually have to have an activity which is connects with people. So um, this has been really successful, actually. We've made jewellery with people, we've got, and we're going to shove it all on Etsy, we're going to sell it and we're going to give the profits to uh, a a refugee charity by common consent with the people we're working with. Um, But what we do in in the session is we do kind of a little bit like what we're doing here. We actually share the privilege of contending the language of the people we're working with. We don't assume um, that anybody knows any better or any worse. So Um, These are a couple of images that have actually come out of this process. So some of you will know that the the present government uses this term life chances. Okay, you've (coughs) all heard it, Ian Duncan Smith, haven't you? Um, So your life chances, you there sir, your life chances will improve if you get a job basically and um, you can get your benefits but it will be in work benefits and everybody will do that and we'll all be better off. Okay. No slacking though, okay sir? You got that, haven't you? Yeah. Um, so what we're doing here is appropriating the images. These are actually done in the workshops. Um, uh, so the background is the same as the life chances images of the government campaign. But when um, we worked with this group of people, they said, well, 
They're all white people walking away from grey tower blocks with lovely children. And most of the people in our groups are actually wearing um, hijab or, you know, other sort of clothing. So it was kind of blindingly obvious that, that this campaign is inappropriate and not really thought out. So these images, by the way, we're going to show at the Utopias Festival um, in June at Somerset House with the participants who are also going to come along. Um, and this one is, can anybody recognise that individual? No. Chancellor, very good. Now, which popular club was he a member of? Bullingdon Club, okay. So we have this wonderful situation, don't we, where we are being run by the Bullingdon boys, you know, uh, they're in charge. And so what we do is, within these workshops is that we talk about that. Some of the people who are migrants, they have no idea about who's running the country and the polemics. So it's a shared space, really, around that kind of thinking. Uh, so I think it's, it's been a really important piece of work for us. How am I doing? Right. Yeah? Four minutes. Thank you. Um, so uh, as we make this kind of work, one of the things that we're trying to do is to... Oh, there's one. Of, this is a piece of jewellery. Look at that. That's made by a Pakistani woman um, who could barely sort of speak to this group and she suddenly revealed this beautiful thing that she made from her bag and we were like oh it's really super excited anyway so um, we, we did the commission in Barking and Dagenham um, working with Miriam and, and colleagues and, and, and again that was quite a challenging project because um, the idea really was to get into a lot of different places in Barking and Dagenham so the, the device that we used was that um, and Hugh is here to attest to this we bought a Ford Transit van and we converted it into a castle. Um, and then we actually took that castle all over Barking and Dagenham and did workshops. But it's a little bit of a Trojan horse because when they said to us, you've got this gig, it's like, yeah, 200 people you've got to get. Oh, no, 400. So we talked about this and we thought, well, this is the engagement dilemma that often faces artists is that if I take this money from the government, I, they've got to prove it through their impact study. So we thought, well, if we use a transit van, we'll meet tons of people, basically. And we did, actually. We met thousands of people at different festivals. But the thing, of course, about this kind of work is that some people stick to the project. You'll get to know them really well. Some people will just do some colouring in with their children. Others will just think, oh, that's lovely, that's a castle. So it's really important to understand that engagement is on a, on a sort of um, continuum. Um, and one of the things that commonly happens in our projects is we meet a few people and we work with them really closely, but we never know who they are because they always kind of come out of the woodwork. So it's very much about this, this kind of process. So I'll just finish by showing you a little bit of this project, which is called Lost Characters. It's a very similar uh, approach. So... This is a guy called Dave. He was in the army. Um, he's a scouser. He um, was part of a mental health group uh, in Bootle. And um, through a process of workshopping, Dave actually agreed to become Jack Johnson, who was one of the um, sort of figures that leaps out of the heritage of, of that part of that coast. And um, he actually became one of the main characters in the film. 
and we actually worked with him to sort of to sort of build the project. Um, so really, a lot of what we're doing really is 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 about kind of as I've said, trying to understand the language, but also contending the language and working with people at the same time on the problem. same words that I picked up when I was listening to your presentations. Um, I've written trust here quite a lot. Trust, very important to establish and difficult to, or challenging, not difficult, challenging to, to establish. Um, did, did anybody else pick up on that when they were listening to each other's present presentations? Um, yes. And some of you work, are there for the long haul when you're working with, with people, um, but others you have to. Other times you have to stretch that trust relatively quickly. Can you can you tell us a bit about that? Um, if I was to think, I didn't actually talk about it when I was presenting, but because the project came from an experience that I had, <clears throat> so I had a narrative which is quite an extreme one around my experience of debt, which was like the data feed for the for a conversation. And so I wasn't just kind of trying to get people's stories of debt into my book. <laughs> and I was kind of like, this is what happened and this is what I'm trying to make, this is how I'm trying to make sense of this. This is the story. And so I think, and I've done that with, with a lot of projects because it comes from my own interest in something that I'm trying to understand better. That, um, it, so then it, so there was a kind of reciprocity in the conversation uh, um, which allowed people to feel maybe that I was safe to talk to. Um, that, so that, that thing of putting your subjectivity into, that's my approach, into, into the conversations was the key for me anyway, as the kind of starting narrative um, and, and being completely um, open about that. And also that, you know, if you, because it's so, for me anyway, exciting, <laughs> To meet people I don't know and talk to them about things that are difficult to talk about. This idea of, you know, if you listen and you're interested, then people more often than that will, will listen, be interested to what you have to say and you know, presenting a subject like that in a, in a slightly different way that they might not have thought about. So that, you know, is a, a kind of the point. So there's not this idea of, you know, coming in and trying to make, you know, fill your project up with people's stories, there's the kind of like, I want to have conversations because I want to expand my understanding, what do you think and how has it affected you? And so for me that was the kind of the alchemical bit. Yeah, and, and the other thing that, I mean, that picks up on the point that you made about, and you about, well all of you really, about placing yourself on the same level as the people that you're working with and not assuming a status because of your your artists and in fact working to make sure that that is understood um, yeah I guess mm -hmm. and I think that for us I guess being a building there is a sense of responsibility in terms of we're physically there, we're there to stay we're there 24-7 and we almost have a generational span in our work meaning that um We've been there for 40 years, we hope to be there for another 40. It means that people who start engaging with this building now, maybe when they are 15, 
will come back when they are 35, 50. So there is a whole, sp and their children will come to that building. Um, I think it's completely different, for instance, from when you go and do a specific intervention. And I think what Simon was saying about this kind of uh, grab and run uh, or pop up, uh, which gets celebrated because it brings something in a culturally deprivated area, but then it has no legacy, it has no long term impact, is something that, of course, needs to be questioned. I think for us, we have that, uh, but it requires a different kind of conversation as well because for 40 years literally a lot of people uh, have lived next door to the bush theater and had no idea that it existed mm. so uh, it meant that nobody went out there to tell them that it existed it meant that nobody uh, went out there to have a conversation about whether they wanted to be part of that story or that narrative uh, i think so it's very important to go out before bringing them in, at least in the case of us uh, having door, physical doors to open and close. I, I think that, sorry, that um, different, the idea of a different conversation resonates with us as well, because in Bark and Dagenham there had been for 30 years, and there still is, a real strong tradition of participatory arts work. Lots of arts organisations making a lot of work, quite often about social issues like teenage pregnancy or knife crime because that's where the funding came from and because that's what's assumed that you make work about those topics in an area like Barking Dagenham. And people were sort of used to participating in that way and being asked to sign up for projects. And I think when we get people involved, we're not asking them to sign up for a project for X numbers of workshops. We're just going out and meeting people on their own terms and getting to know them. And I think it's completely different. If you're just going out and getting to know someone, and building a relationship, not because you want them to be involved in a project because you've got your quota and you're looking for you know, 19 to 25 year olds from a certain area. It, it just creates a completely different um, atmosphere between you and them. So I think that's probably the thing that's worked for us, that we are just meeting people as people because we want to get to know people and it's about their ideas. I'd like to say, um, I went to Dagfest, which is the picture that Miriam showed, and um, on the same day, I went to another um, much more middle-class festival, which um, so I had this kind of rare opportunity of a compare and contrast. What was really interesting about Dagfest, and I think Hugh, you were there as well, is that um, there was a palpable energy in all of the streets, which wasn't controlled by anybody. Um, and it was, I thought, a really incredible achievement because um, often when we attend these kind of festivals, there's kind of like a lot of health and safety regimes and go this way, go that way, behave like this. What was really fantastic about this festival was that um, it felt genuinely uh, quite chaotic at times. Um, that was intentional. Yeah, <laughs> and honestly people, you could see, I, I could overheard a number of people saying, Oh, they ought to do this again next year. It'd be great. It'd be lovely. Yeah, I really liked it. And there was kind of, you know, real popular subscription. And I think that oh, was an amazing achievement. I think that's where trust comes in mm. as well, because you're you're trusting people that aren't arts professionals that don't have a background in curation to make a really fantastic, quite anarchic, quite different event that people want to come to. <coughs> and it seems that you've already gone some way down the road of. When you talked about um, doing the site visit with the artist uh, for the sound installation, uh, 
the situated knowledge of local people is is now really foregrounded and shared and is a factor. And you know, you're going to go in that direction more and more as you work with um, your associates yes. as well as all the other things that you'll be doing. And you started writing <coughs> that premise at the beginning because you were interested in an idea that could be shared and developed mm. with people's real experiences. Mm. Uh, but also, you, I like the way you described yours as an inquiry because it was a, you know, you didn't, you took a big risk and it wasn't something that, I mean, there were some staging posts like the burning, but actually you were quite open about the, where the project was going yeah. and maybe it's still going. Yeah. And that's where it's, that's where it's at now, isn't yeah. it? How do you how do you make an ending for your projects when you are going to different places and working with communities that is that is a, a good ending for the participants in terms of you going away from them? Um, yeah, good question. I mean, to be honest, we tend to keep in touch with lots of people um, that we meet. So. Um, I'm still in touch with people from Barking and Dagenham and um, uh, I would say that it's really important to understand what the roles are, even though I've said the issues are around intervention. Um, we always say that we're artists and so um, people are actually quite clear around what the transaction is, that we're not residents in the community, so we will go away but to be honest um, the best thing is to have a big celebratory event which is what we did with the mm. film which we made in Barking and Dagenham and I think that gave everybody a sense of having achieved something and um, a lot of the other work was actually shown at the same time so I think celebrating with people is, mm. is a good way to end mm. yeah. Great. So it would be great to hear if the people in the room have got any comments or observations or questions for the panel? I have a question. Yeah. Um, when you went into Dagenham and you met a bunch of people that thought art was like those breast things, quite a nice way, um, and then you kind of had, 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 yeah, and you had those uh, very good interventions with those people. The people that weren't part of that, how do they feel about the people that aren't cultural connectors. Yeah, uh, people outside of that loop, you know, because that'd be kind of interesting to find out, you know, whether they felt anything different. I know it's a difficult question because you didn't know those people, but yeah. No, but it's, it's a really good, it's something we think about all the time <coughs> because as the cultural connectors group grows, we sort of realise we spend a lot of time communicating with that network and giving opportunities to that network and it's you know it's 125 it's quite big and, and we're a team of three and there's only a certain amount of kind of growth that we can manage with it but we have um we've got an evaluation uh, contract that runs through the whole because it's an action research program we work with the audience agency across that will be across the six years of the program and they in their surveys they do quite a lot of work at festivals like dagfest or film screening to speak to people that aren't cultural connectors that have come along and find out how they feel about Creative Barking Dagenham or how they feel about the arts or how often they take part in the arts. So that's that's how we work that out. Okay. And is there a point in which the cultural connectors can actually run themselves? Is it kind of like a... That is, that's the idea. And that's kind of where we're at at the moment, thinking about the next three years. So the moment we're thinking about 
we've sort of set ourselves up to dissolve. So we, we see ourselves as a catalyst to make stuff happen, and then we, we just kind of want to vanish, but having left a tangible legacy of, of people to be able to continue it. So with the Culture Connectors, they're looking at forming a, a kick community interest company at the moment. And obviously with 125 people, that's quite difficult. So the conversations are around having a sort of inner tier that, that make decisions that, that communicate with the outer tier or, or something like that. And then, um, say that again? You come and do it in Newcastle. I'd love them to do it. I'd love it to be replicated. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I loved all the contributions and I loved the work and the ideas behind the participatory programming and all that stuff and revolutionary, I think you described it. The thought that came into my head, though, rather irresonantly, was is there any danger in all this that somehow more challenging or experimental? Uh, more conflict-driven theatre um, is, uh, is going to be pushed out. And a lot of the work I do is gay theatre, it's um, gay issues, um, and it's um, challenging in its form. I use a lot of nudity, a lot of explicit content. Um, you mentioned Sarah Kane. Um, I don't believe Blasted was ever done in, in the Bush theatre, but could Sarah Kane be blasted in the, in the Bush theatre in the future. So what I think I'm asking is, is there any danger that the revolutionary and quite correct nature of getting the community into a programme of things is actually going to work against what to me is one of the driving forces of all artists, which is um, uh, up the bourgeoisie, as it used to be said. <laughs> Well, I think it's interesting the question, could Blasted be done at the Bush? I don't know if at the Bush, but I would say, could Blasted be done today in any subsidized theater in this country? I don't know. Uh, <laughs> I think, uh, yeah, the, the context is, is different because I think, uh, and, and I'm, I'm completely with you. I'd say the answer, the honest answer to that is that, uh, what we think is interesting is to team up artists that have ideas and, and a vision with, for instance, companies or communities that want to say something. And it's the meeting and the reaction between the two of those that will create something interesting. Uh, and in that matchmaking, I think we need to be clever. We don't need to put necessarily the two that will go hand in hand and have the same exact views, but we can't just put something that will not work. Uh, we need to feel first that we create an environment in which those conversations can happen so that we create that trust. Uh, but at the same time, and then see how far we can go in provoking uh, each other's remit. Uh, I hope that there is the possibility uh, of working with groundbreaking uh, and, and avant-garde artists with a group of 75-plus-year-old uh, Afro-Caribbean um, people. Why not? Uh, but I think it's about how we create the context for that to happen and how much then those two those groups and, those, and that artist are willing to engage with each other. I don't think it excludes the space that then that kind of art might have in the mainstream or outside of the mainstream necessarily. But it's a very valid question, is how do we push that into the community sector? Can I just respond to that? And I don't know if Miriam knows a bit more about it than I do, but I know that um, in St Helens, where there's another Creative and People 
Creative People and Places project called Heart of Glass, and their main partner is the local rugby club, that they very early on um, commissioned Scotty to go and do one of his fantastic um, cabaret variety shows. And for those of you who don't know Scotty, he, his work is, you know, he's working class, he's, uh, he's into drag, he's into camp. Um, he's really brought, you know, well, they said at first that we don't think we've got a lesbian, gay and transgender community in, in St. Helens. You know, well, I mean, obviously, all that came to the surface like just <laughs> with a blink of an eye and was widely popular as well. So I don't know if you know more about that story, that example. I know that they, they work quite intensively with artists, but I think Scotty yeah. was in residence for a year, kind of doing um. different things and meeting people in between doing his cabaret nights, so, so he yeah. engaged kind of directly with the community. So, so it is possible. There's no reason why the two things should be opposed, exactly. but I, I just think there's a particularly presumably in, in a very diverse community, you're always going to have quite sections of those communities you think gay people should be stoned. Mm -hmm. It's most extreme. So what do you do about that? How do you balance it up so you can do different things without upsetting people in the morning? Can but I just say, I think you're making a, um, I don't agree with you. I, I think you're separating out. Um, when we do our projects, we regard them as experimental all the time. And the, you know, the, I mean, the, it's a diff we work largely in sort of visual arts and media art, not theatre, but um, in terms of our practice, when we, we go in, we're, we're not sort of the B-team community artists, which is a kind of hierarchical notion of how visual arts was, has been set up in the UK. We're actually there to do the best possible job we can um, and to push the situation really hard. And writing a novel with a group of uh, Somalian women is, uh, as far as I'm concerned, that's quite a highly exper experimental way to work. So I'm not entirely sure that it, what you're saying is true. Thank you. Can I just throw you a challenge? Um, my challenge is, who do you think you're kidding? Um, with that phrase, putting yourself on the same level. Mm -hmm. So you're an artist. This is your life. This is your passion. And but when you're talking about the work you make, it's projects. So for the people you work with, it's a transitory project. Even if you work for three years, three years of a whole life, that's a relatively short period of time. And you're mobile. You talk about going to this place and leaving. I would suspect that a lot of the people that you work with are stuck. Maybe that's by choice, but maybe that's by circumstances. And I, I find it slightly complacent in some of your presentations. I'm being deliberately provocative, but I don't know, there's something there. This is, is this is exactly what Grant Kester says, what you say. Yeah. Well, you're right, of course, you know, you, this, you can't actually be other than you are in a situation, which is why it is transactional. We are artists and we're not community members, so um, I think that the twist which I think can make the difference, and I think Barking and Dagenham is a good example, is when it becomes reciprocal, mm -hmm. when the opportunity is there for those people to be culturally active and participative. Um, and certainly in the projects we do, that often happens. It's about the idea that you are culturally empowered to be a, a player yourself. Now that might not change their housing, their social status or their disability, but it actually does give them respect 
and the fact that they are actually engaged in, in the cultural and social space. I think both that question and the others make some assumptions about who communities are that we're working with. And I have never said or thought about putting myself on the same level as anyone that I work with in Barking and Zeppelin. We're, we're a team of three. One lives in Barking, one lives in Newham, grew up there. Um, in a kind of very unarts engaged big Pakistani family, uh, and I live in Sydenham, and, and we we don't put ourselves on the same level because we're we're not that different, and so the idea of us kind of bringing stuff it doesn't work like that with us. We're just meeting people and we're creating things with people, and they are owning the things. So it's it's more about us kind of producing other people's visions. And I think in in Barking Dagenham, there has been this sense of people being seen as. You are from an area with, with multiple deprivation. You are this. People are defined by the, the problems, the health inequalities, the fact that there's 10 years of life expectancy difference between Barking and Dagenham, Kensington and Chelsea. This is all anybody ever talks about. And I suppose what we're doing is just meeting people as people, not as people that live in an area of multiple deprivation. And I think in a way, in terms of arts engagement, probably one of the reasons why it hasn't got as big as it has now before is because people thought, well, in Barking and Dagenham, what you need to do is make work about knife crime about gangs, about health inequalities, and all the funding was for that, and nobody really thought about, there's audiences here that would love some glamour to go to Royal Opera House, a bit of escapism, would like to do different things. So I think it's precisely because we're not thinking about levels or defining who people are in Barking and Dagenham, we're just meeting people. <laughs> yeah. It's very, you know, people have so many sort of fixed ideas about the label of the artist, and I, you know, I, I just tra tend to operate as a human being, trying to understand, you know, the condition that I or we are in better. So I see it as, um, as, as work as an inquiry, and I meet people of all kinds of, <coughs> all kinds of backgrounds, and sometimes, sometimes they're more privileged than me, and sometimes they're not. You know, sometimes I'm more stuck than them, and sometimes they're not. And so, and yeah, one can't apologise for you know, for the job one has. But I found out a great level of doing that particular project <clears throat> because I had had, you know, had had extreme financial, um, uh, you know, loss. And somehow <clears throat> I was extremely grateful for the fact that I was, because I was able to just about turn it into, uh, before giving up making my work, turn it into a project. <laughs> Which, which, which was then, you know, an opening up of something which really the, the kind of conversations I was having with people as I was learning about, you know, the kind of dodgy politics of, of debt culture. Um, you know, there were light bulbs, there were lights going off in the room when I was having conversations, you know, workshops. Or, and, but people were teaching me things too, so I just see it, I do see it as an exchange. And, um, you know, even the way that the, bur the burnings turned out, you know, that they became communal and they, and the relationship, you know, from the beginning of the project to the end of the project, people kept in touch with it, you know, for that period of time and, it, and it's ongoing and it was a chapter in my life but the project I'm doing now is totally fed by that way of working and is now very much about kind of uh, working um, along those lines but, you know, in di different, different, th different themes and subjects but... So I just see it as, as a continuum. I don't see it as like, I did this project and then I came out again and went to Paris or something. It's, like, it's so not like that, my life. <laughs> so, you know, I have kids, I struggle. I've just about managed to you know, survive barely. 
you know, it's, uh, you know, privileged, yes, because I'm involved in a process <coughs> of creating meaning and poetry and, and uh, it's, it lifts things to, to some extent and, you know, turning a burning of a book of debts into a celebratory wake is something magical that happens with people, but I don't see myself in that. I think there's a conception of artist as, you know, something very remote from what I know myself to be. And um, I think coming back to that idea about risk as well, to me there's probably more risk in decision-making power in the arts remaining in a small elite than there is in expanding it out. Yeah, yeah I'm, I'm, I'm more talking about form and context. And, and the thing about the, the artist, whether the artist's different, the, the danger that the artist just gets diluted in the, I'm quite good, some people here will tell you, at speaking um, for an hour without any clothes on rather loudly. Now, not many people can do that or would want to do it, but it is a skill. It's not, you know, uh, no, no, maybe, uh, probably no one else in the room could do it. Um, so, and I think artists do have specific skills that may be to do with the background. Shall we find out? Is anybody else in the room? <laughs> 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 well, I can <laughs> Do you mean the thing about everyone can be an artist? Is that what you're talking about? I'm, I'm saying I don't, I don't think every can, every no. can be an artist in some sense. Yeah, we yeah. all have different skills and we yeah. do different things and you must undervalue yeah. Yeah, the, yeah, yeah. Um, the artists <coughs> because people spend their lives being artists. They're not the same as someone who's woken up this morning and thought, oh, I'd like to be an artist. There's a difference here. No, but being on a level with somebody doesn't mean that you're not, you don't have a specialism or expertise. No, it just no. means that there's not a higher level. Oh, yeah. yeah Artists aren't special. Yeah. Su you know, they're just different. It's a different, you know, one mustn't yeah. undervalue the role of the artist. I, I don't think uh, I, I, I mean, I thought the whole programming stuff was fantastic. And I think people should, in those dimensions, choose what they want. As I was saying earlier, I think there's some slight danger that the whole thing may become a little bit more middle of the road because of that initially. And one has to fight against that. But um, certainly the idea of people in communities choosing the artists they want, um, I think it's fantastic. I, I, I was going to respond to your question about artists and community. I mean, I think um, you can turn it around. What's community? I, I live in one. It's the Southern's oldest co-op, and you know it went for over 30 years. I've been there for about 30 years, and now it's kind of imploded. So, uh, you know, I know very well about a small community at 75 flat, and um, we're all individuals. <laughs> you know, we're a bunch of individuals, like you said, with all ideas that don't link up. You know, and sometimes people come and we do link up, and other times we go off into our individual space. So the community is just, oh, I don't know, it's a bit of a myth, I feel. <laughs> so it's like, you, you just meet people, like you were saying, you know, they're individuals. So, it's not really a question so much as a, a kind of a thinking. I think that, um, I think that to a degree, I, I agree with the gentleman behind. Um, I don't come from a middle class family. I'm born in Croydon, but not one of my family would go to South Bank and think that it was for them. And that's meant to be my thing. And there's nothing wrong with that, but that's just where I come. And so I, I'm sorry, I think we are all really privileged simply by being in this room, we're privileged. Um, and I think as artists or producers, we are privileged and I don't think we get away from that. That said, the flip side of that coin is if I think about the, the book, the project that you did, I know that because a lot of my friends took part in Brixton. Mm -hmm. 
and some of those were people were into art and mm -hmm. some weren't and have never been and it's probably one of the most therapeutic experiences of their own life if they had to think about it it really was significant to them and one of the things they came back was saying that there was no boundary there was a, there was a it was blurred to a point that they didn't even recognise you as the artist. You were a person on exactly the same footing as them. So I think the two can coexist. And I think the idea of bringing in the connectors and then really facilitating them, like that, that's a brilliant thing. But I still think maybe the thing about this is that and socially engaged should be able to sit in the theatre alongside what that isn't so socially engaged, that is simply driven by a brilliant artist. But I think maybe the big thing about having this conversation is remembering that we, all of us, on some perspective, no matter whether we're in debt, whether we're grief-stricken, whether we're broke, we are, we are in a position of privilege. I, I really believe that, by, by definition of, of where we are. And, and the conversations were. Do you mean as artists? As artists, yeah. whoever's in this room, as an artist, as a producer, mm -hmm. um, as someone who works in a university, in comparison to a lot of the rest of London or the country or the world, we are in really privileged positions. And, and, and it's checking ourselves all of the time that we're working and trying to understand that, of course, when you strip us naked, we're all the same, but. But remembering that and living that out and not sitting for a point of privilege is really hard. And that makes this dialogue very hard. I think. Louise, I'm going to ask about um, public service. So just kicking off from in a way some things you're saying, the the status of the book in the action of writing things inside the book mm -hmm. as um, you know, providing essential mm -hmm. service on it. And thinking about things like libraries, which are closing, you know, in their tens as the weeks unfold, um, and which now, you know, are occupied by other things like gyms and spas and maybe arts organisations, um, and how models of working may or may not be highly complementary to, um, you know, the drive to. Uh, strip out structures and resources and delegate them to people. Um, I was just wondering about tensions around ideas of public service, really. It's not, you know, I don't want to make any kind of grandstanding statements or kind of judgments or anything, but just to ask what kinds of thoughts or feelings have you had in relation to ideas of public service in the work that you've been doing? Yeah. Um. Um, but in relation to the book, for example, um, I think because of the kind of the metaphor and mythology of it, uh, what was my relationship to the book, it, it became the idea of being the servant of the book, carrying it out. And I had to resist, <coughs> and religion people were having different views about what my relationship was, so in Port Slave, which was the second one, someone came and was like, so you're the high priestess of debt. <laughs> no, no, that's no. not that's not my <laughs> They wanted you know to elevate you know. And so um, so it was kind of like how do I 
because you know once I had created this framework it was a kind of powerful idea it was like how do I then um, become less central in that of course having a voice and you know the provocation and was it was important but how do I give agency to people to then use the book in different ways when I'm not there um, and that was part of it too so um, um, yeah, I feel I feel like uh, public service is a is a kind of someone gave me that phrase and it, it just resonated and made sense. You know, as, as being someone who carries and who scribes and is is an, is instrumental in something but isn't the central focus. But 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 you know, if we're thinking about things like you know talking in the media, people want they want they want the central character they want. You know what I mean? They want the story. They want the kind of why. They want the um, so you can, you have to kind of negotiate that at the same time. There's a kind of balance really to, to people's perception of you in the work and then how you want the experience to be a leveling one. Yeah, if that answers anything. Mm -hmm. Anybody else? Respond to that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I I think it's really interesting the idea of public service because of course we. For instance, at the Bush are a subsidised venue, so even though that subsidy has been cut every year a bit more and eroded, but of course we we feel we are a public space and we are serving a number of communities, not only the community on, on our doorstep, but a number of communities uh, and a taxpayer. Um, what's interesting, and it's interesting because we took possession of a library, the library actually moved into Westfields, which built them a whole new futuristic uh, building, which is ugly, much uglier than, than, than ours, but of course the service still remains, and it's interesting that it goes much closer to corporate business than any public space. But I think the way we interpret it, at least, and I don't know if this is right, but is that we are part of a system of an ecology. The way, in, in terms of the responsibility we have by running a building, and an outward facing building with public money or a part of public money is that we need to be able to have a communication with the community uh, and to give something back to it. Uh, the, our expertise is in storytelling, our expertise is in making theatre, making live art, uh, and, we want, and that's where we can really uh, impact. Um, what we've been focusing on is to tie relationship with all the other players around us in the community that do, that have other kind of expertise. And we hope to be a bit like what you do, it feels like a catalyst for different people to then meet and do something that might happen at the Bush Theatre, might happen inside the building, might happen under the banner of the Bush Theatre, but might also happen three years later somewhere else in a, under a completely different umbrella, but it has happened because we became part of that ecology. So at the beginning we wanted the big solution that fixed all the problems and we want to put our uh, you know, um, flag on the soil and say, hey, here we are and we want to do everything. And actually we realized that if we try to do everything, we can't really do anything and we have very little impact. While by nourishing those relationships and trying to set up certain projects and entering them at different moments, we are able to actually have a lot more impact in different spheres. 
So that's how I think we respond to that provocation of public service in the way we can. I think we'd all love to be in a system and context in which there was much more spending and much more responsibility and much more engagement from the public up and the public down. But I think in, in, in the moment we are, we, we find those solutions. Can I just ask questions about um, sort of work that is not sort of, I mean, as, as you, you guys are obviously getting funding and to what, what where the landscape lies with socially engaged artists that are not getting funded but are doing sort of more riskier, more engaging kind of work that is challenging issues in different kinds of ways and to, to, to the extent that you can go down that line to follow that work because it's all about funding and public money and ticking boxes to a certain extent. Where do you feel that you could really just kind of go, right, I want to tackle white supremacy with this project, for example? Do you have to kind of fluff it around with other things to kind of go down that road? Or do you engage artists or people that might want to pursue those topics that are really dangerous, taboo, or just a question? Um, I think for us it's, it depends on the relationships that you can kind of introduce and you can work with different subjects depending on where you're at with people. So one thing that I used to find quite frustrating at the start, we, we've got um, a neighbourhood strand of our project which um, artists are resident on housing estates across the borough for six months. And um, in some of those artists' residencies, what people were doing was decorating cupcakes and making dream weavers. And I was kind of thinking, oh my God, I'm running a project it's about decorating cupcakes. What's going on here? And the Arts Council were saying, oh, we want to see more challenging work. But the thing is that once you've kind of built a connection and once you've built cultural confidence so people are sort of used to getting involved in stuff and they're connecting with you and they're trying out different things and they're coming on go-sees with us to the National Theatre, to the South Bank places where they haven't been before and they're, and they're seeing different kinds of art, once you kind of get a bit further down the road of that relationship, then you can bring in things that are a bit more challenging and definitely um, about challenging power structures. And I think, in a way, what's liberating for our project is that it is, we're funded by the Arts Council to increase arts engagement, not, to, not for community cohesion or to reduce health equalities, it's just about arts engagement. But we realise that the, way that we, the only way we can increase arts engagement is by dismantling power structures that exist already in terms of who makes decisions about the arts, what kind of art gets commissioned and all that kind of stuff. And I think that as we go further with this and as the Cultural Connectors Network represents the society out there, there will be more challenging work that gets created. And in fact, the commission that Simon did for us is kind of moving towards that way. It's a very political commission, talking about the last 50 years, the, the impact of globalisation on Barking and Dagenham and what that's meant in terms of people's working lives. And out of that, there was a huge amount of stuff that came about race and about immigration and about how some new communities and old communities and, and how people connect. And it was quite difficult stuff. And at, at the screening that we had, there was a lot of questions. People, you know, some people kind of not wanting to see their area being represented like that on film. And especially the council, the councillors really wanting to sell this new vision of Barking and Dagenham, London's newest growth opportunity, and all shiny and in Barking Town Square. And this film did absolutely nothing like that <laughs> and so so i think yes when you've got that trust it sort of comes back to trust when you've got the trust with people you, mm. you can start moving into much more challenges. and that trust doesn't involve it well to a certain extent it wouldn't involve any money financial funding to do a, obviously down the string but to do a piece of work that would be really 
powerful, the small group of people that didn't require much funding, surely you could think, okay, we could do some of that kind of work. We've got other things going on in the main strands, but you know, this group of people are invested in this pipeline, let's start drilling in this area without any money, without much resources, but the commitment and the interest is there from the community. But we, we have artist pitching sessions, so as we've got better known, artists come to us with proposals, and we put the word out to Culture Connectors via our WhatsApp group and Facebook groups, and we get them to come and, and present their pitches to groups of cultural connectors. And one we had recently was an organisation called Tangled Feet with our, a show that was about kind of global injustice and um, climate change and how that was kind of disproportionately affecting different people. So, I mean, there was some quite political stuff there and the group wanted to continue speaking to those artists. So, yes, we are able to build structures so that if artists' ideas come in, we can debate them and see what the interest is and, and make them happen, if that was your question. No? This gentleman doesn't look happy. What's missing? Um, I just wanted to pick up on something that you talked about public service and you talked about public building. And you mentioned about the streets around Dagfest and how they were kind of unregulated in comparison to other uh, festivals that you've been at recently, one that you went in the same day. And I was just picking up on that strand of the work that's in the public realm, in open spaces. And of course, open spaces in the public realm is being diminished in the city. And you know, because you're on the cusp of something uh, in Creative Parking and Dagenham, is that something that you're feeling very aware of, that um, those public realm spaces may be curtailed as regeneration and developers move in? Or is that something that you feel can be defended because of the work that you're doing and establishing them as non-negotiable in terms of being taken away. <laughs> I think that Barking Dagenham is, is on the cusp and at the moment we have, we've got a local authority, it's very strange that Barking Dagenham seems to have like a different weather system than any other local authority. They, when I first started the arts team had just been cut and the events team had just been cut and things have now come full circle. There's now an arts team, a two cultural events officer, the director of culture who's got arts commissioning fund for the first time in years. And the leader of the council is a dancer and kind of believes in the arts. And they've just commissioned this report that is telling them all about how arts and culture are the way to put Barking Dagenham on the map. So for us, we've got a council that just wants us to do more art stuff in spaces. And they're literally emailing us and saying, there's these spaces in Shadwell Heath, there's this space in Dagenham Dock, do stuff. So it may well change as developers start taking that power away from councils, but at the moment, there's lots of kind of meanwhile spaces, there's lots of public realm stuff being built that, that we're being invited to do stuff in. Did you want to say something about that? Uh, yeah, no, I, um, very briefly, um, what's interesting about Barking and Dagenham, from my perspective, because we, we spent a whole year there, so, you know, and, uh, um, the, I think it would be fair to say that it's moved from being a traditional, largely white, working class community, which was very much built around uh, companies like Ford and May and Baker and sort of big, big businesses. And then, um, you know, a lot of people use this, this language of dis disruption, which again, I'm, I'm kind of a little bit concerned about because um, 
But essentially, Barking and Dagenham has gone through the most enormous change imaginable over a period of, say, 50 years. But in the last 10 years, it's even more so. Um, and I would kind of ask a question about the people in the room, which is that we encountered a lot of white people who you would not think are, shall we say, racist in the way that is considered sort of as a broad term, but we encountered people who felt that they were being pushed out of their community and all of the services were massively under pressure and that their lives had been changed with, uh, whether they liked it or not. And we were faced with having a conversation with Miriam, because this is one of the backstories coming through, which is about representation, which I think answers a couple of the other questions. And it's like, how do you actually represent that? Well, what we decided to do was to kind of show it how it is, but we recorded a few interviews which were extremely full-on, kind of, they need to go back to where they came from. Um, but there is a genuine sort of thing um, <clears throat> that I'm aware of, because, we again, we've worked, we're working in Cardiff at the moment, which is that certain parts of the UK have taken the brunt of the incoming people. So if you live in Barking and Dagenham, um, there has been a huge influx of people. And if you live in Cardiff, it's the same. And so if you are a person who's part of a traditional working-class community, you've had to budge up whereas other communities in the UK have not had to do that. And I, I'm asking you whether you, what you would feel if you were faced with the same situation where you were being asked to budge up. I mean, the conversations we have are about this, this notion of budging up, because for me, that the budging up is not because of other people coming in, it's because of how communities get turned against each other. Uh, because of it's austerity. The of the artist to intervene in these things, not to just report what is said to them. Well, yes, and we had this conversation honest, where you said... I, I don't mean intervene yeah. in the sense no. of going into a community and saying we're going to change you, Yeah. but it's the job of an artist, surely, to intervene in a racist debate. I don't know. Yeah, well, we well, this people, this people debate or not. Yeah. No, but just said they told you it was very clearly racist. Now, you can understand why people feel that, but it is racism, and it surely yeah. is the job of an artist, I would say, to combat racism. And, and just to be clear, when we encountered fully racist behaviour, we did confront it back in the way that you would do. For example, at a football match, um, we, you know, we had people who were just completely off the leash in what they said. Um, but when we made our film, we were faced with the, as Miriam says, the dilemma of how to report the community as it was at that moment. And so we had to find a balance in terms of um, not misrepresenting Barking as a place that is absolutely stuffed full of bad racist people, which it isn't. Bringing it back to the public realm question as well, I suppose um, what was interesting for us is that Council had kind of had a history of doing African and Caribbean events in this park and a mellow over there and quite, for us, quite segregated, divisive programming. And I think what we could do is bring a mix of people into public spaces that just didn't happen in any other way in any other time. And that started to spark conversations and change and change the way that places felt. And Dagenham, where we do Dagfest, is an example of that. There's a pub in there that, if you're not white, it's scary to go in there. It, you know, it feels, feels like a really hostile place. And the festival happens around that pub and around the church that's next to it. And when it happens, the streets are, are full of a mixture of people who are all kind of celebrating together. 
And it does leave a sort of memory in that space and the possibility of change. If you are um, going to pay people to participate, uh, does that change that involvement? I mean, um, I'm thinking, say, the Arts Council funds somebody, then those people fund somebody else. And, you know, that, but at some point, you, I, I guess most people want people to participate for nothing. And somehow to pay people to participate might be um, wrong or uh, change the dynamic of the relationship or something. But well, how do you feel about, say, and there's a difference between, say, paying a, um, a cultural connector and not paying a cultural connector. Someone might do it because they love it and that's what they want to do and they, they think it's good for the community. Others would say, I do it, but I'm a bit skint at the moment and can you pay me? Will it change and how much will it change? It depends what sort of participation you mean. But we would never want anyone to be out of pocket for, for coming to the meetings. The travel expenses are just a basic. It's crazy to expect that people should pay for turning up to stuff. Um, but cultural connection meetings and socials happen once a month, so we can get travel expenses for that. But they're not paid to be there, they're there because they want to be there. If cultural connectors give their time on a decision-making panel to look through you know, 100 artist applications and to shortlist them and to interview the artists, then we pay for that time. But we also have quite a lot of payrolls that we put out only to the to Barking Dagenham residents, so say production assistants on our festivals. And we encourage all the artists we work with if they need marketing done and production stuff to employ local people. So we do quite a lot of brokering of relationships as well um, to get people uh, like contracts with the council, for example. If the council are looking for a filmmaker, they might approach us and we might know someone in the network. So we, we kind of try and support people in that way. But the people don't pay to come to, we, we don't no. pay people to come to meetings or social because they, they want to be part of the network. They, they want to come. Um, I just wanted to emphasise and kind of echo what you guys said about there's been a lot of talk in terms of what the artist's role is and what the legacy is and stuff like that. And I think talking in terms of space and in terms of reclaiming space and in terms of changing the interaction that people have and you know mixing and being, being able to interact with one another, I think space is such a vital thing in all of the projects that you're doing. Um, and I think when we talk again about impact, that that's something that has to be kind of considered. The long-term impact is not necessarily about the potential of every artist that kind of comes through and interacts with you. The legacy is much more there in terms of what you leave behind in terms of the community. And I think one of the things that I've been hearing from listening to you and people in the room is, um, as well as the, the spaces and the places, it's about, you all talked about conversations. Mm -hmm. Um, lots and lots of conversations and that's really part of the, the process um, all, all the processes of the, the way that you're working so those conversations I think um, can be very difficult conversations or conversations that people don't normally have the opportunity to have like with you or at the bush or with you and these are new opportunities for conversations that will bring different things to the surface so um, I think that's uh, experimental and unpredictable mm. it will be you know if these, if these people are having different conversations and they actually have more agency to act on those conversations or see the evidence of their input and those conversations materialize around them in tangible work that is going to make a change and maybe that's what's different to what's happened before in some of the practice that's been under the umbrella of um community arts or participatory arts practice. Can I ask another question? Uh, just around to what extent 
perhaps um, the outcomes of any of the work that people on the panel produce can be a contribution in terms of like a toolkit or a tactic that can be used to lobby against um, some kind of incoming, you know, uh, uh, change like um, talk about community spaces and um, gentrification and stuff like that. Can what's being produced be used to lobby and say, well, this community back this 100%, and this is right up front on the table. Uh, can any of the work be used in that way? And have been, or do you have a legacy of that? Is that the way you kind of thinking forward, or mm. the project we're doing in Bristol and Cardiff with both universities, um, we're looking at um, the benefits system, and the people we're working with are actually um, defining what they think the benefits system should look like in terms of their circumstances. And the university is taking that as research, which is then going to feed back into policy making in England and Wales. But what effect that will have, of course, is another matter. But it is, it's quite a deliberate attempt to, to do that. Um, when I was doing the book, um, <coughs> I was asked uh, by some Spanish activists and some on Ireland if they could do a book of debts there. Specific, specific, specific kind of campaign. So they are, and they, I love the idea of it just taking off and people, because some of them were very, were very political. I mean, in, in Brixton, because it was all stuff around the arches and there were a lot of narratives around that, and that sort of became uh, one of the central um, themes. Um, uh, but absolutely, I think th what's interesting is <coughs> doing something that has multiple lives that. Is I saw that some of it's got instrumentalised in that way and I was happy for that to happen. But the ongoing kind of narrative was a broad one, so it was kind of what can debt be on many, many different levels. But it became a lot more political because, <clears throat> because as, the, as the project went on, the whole issue of the debt and the financial injustice be, became more and more prominent. So when I, when I started with the first book, the Grebin debt book wasn't out and... A month afterwards, they started having, you know, debtors' assemblies in America and burning actual debts, and you know. So then I was sort of bringing that data into into conversation, and so there was a kind of it was kind of you know parallel to people really doing things that really made a difference. So it was it was a sort of almost soft version of what's actually going on now, which is debt strikes and all kinds of things. So I think it kind of you know it gave people the kind of. Uh, power and confidence to kind of really question <clears throat> some of the situations they were in and the agreements that they'd been part of uh, um, and some people did take action as, as a result and I know that that has happened for example but you Very can't always know you know how people are going to use your work but last comment Suzanne mm -hmm. thank you do you think um, in whatever role you consider yourself if you're sort of looking at socially engaged practice, you have a moral or ethical duty to to give the people you're working with the power to make other change. Because for example in Barking, we just had like the mayor's head of arts come to talk to us and say that that is on the table for regeneration and they see that as a new place for artists and so I'm sort of going, well it's great, you're empowering all of these people through art. But is it now your duty, do you 
sure that you're equipping them. It's like opening your eyes to it and then... Well, and also for us, like, that's exactly the question for the next three years, because what we are really worried about is being a sort of fig leaf uh, for the local authority or for the Arts Council or for the GLA or whatever. Isn't it great how they involve local people in Great Bark and Dagenham, but not influencing what anybody else does? And so our big battle is to try and influence, actually, how local people are involved in making decisions about what happens in the area across the board, not just in our wee project, but across the board. So working with, working with the Arts Council, working with the, the Regen Department in the Council, working with the Housing Team in the Council. Because otherwise, if it just stays within the confines of our project, it's been completely pointless. And the other thing we're very preoccupied with is kind of passing on the skills to do stuff. So I'm doing kind of budgeting workshops, how you put together budgets, all that kind of stuff. So we, we need to pass it on, otherwise there's no, there's no point. But isn't it worse than that? Is because art is seen as a, you know, I think that's the main driver of regeneration, mm. that actually local councils are going, we want this art for the moment, fully knowing that, that it allows the developers to come in next. So how do you make sure that you're not just a pawn, mm. effectively? Art washing. Yeah, yeah. Just, yeah, yeah. Do, do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, I know exactly what you mean. Mm. And we need to think about it. I don't have an easy answer to that at all, but it's a massive, massive risk. And I think the next few years are going to be absolutely crucial because that's when things are going to start happening. Thank you very much to the panel and to our hosts. Um, will you join me in giving them a round of applause? Thank you. <laughs> <laughs>